Our friends at The New Republic have recently introduced The Politics of Everything, a new podcast exploring the intersection of culture, politics, and media. The show's hosts are TNR literary editor Laura Marsh and staff writer Alex Perrine. On recent episodes, they have examined the fraught decision to have children in an era of climate crisis, how privatization and pharmaceutical consolidation in the U.S. have contributed to the COVID-19 pandemic, and how protests shape policy. You can find the politics of everything wherever you get your favorite podcasts. Welcome to the Harper's Podcast. My name is Violet Luca, and I'm the web editor. As we begin another month under a mishandled pandemic with millions unemployed, while people try to recover from the destructive force of Hurricane Laura, while Jacob Blake lies in critical condition after Kyle Rittenhouse's lawyer tweeted that his client would, quote, go down in American history alongside that brave unknown patriot at Lexington Green who fired the shot heard around the world on April 19th, 1775, end quote, it's hard to feel hopeful. In the September issue of Harper's Magazine, Eric Reese reconsiders the life and work of a poet who engaged with environmental issues and civilizational collapse, Robinson Jeffers. Reese argues that in the face of looming climate catastrophe, Jeffers' view of humanity and time may be more useful than the blind hope we've been encouraged to adopt. I spoke with Reese about his essay and about how we can think about approaching inevitabilities in a more productive way. You write that for a long time, Robinson Jeffers' pessimism and contempt always scared you off. But that that changed after the election of Trump. What exactly do you think shifted for you? I think I began really questioning the whole idea of hope, actually. Mm-hmm. You know, just it, it was such an Obama-era word. Right. And when we entered the Trump era, it just seemed so meaningless to me. And I just began to think, you know, we need a new way of thinking about the way we move forward without sounding so optimistic. Um, I I felt like we needed a way to move forward that embraced what James Baldwin called the tragic view of life. Mm -hmm. And that was kind of Jeffers' vision. Uh, And so I had always really clung to Walt Whitman as this poet who was going to, you know, make America a better country. And that, that was what he, you know, that's what his, his project was about. Uh, and even Whitman at the end of his life said, you know, democracy is a good word, but it exists in the future. And, you know, there was kind of a darkness at the end of Whitman's life that I think Jeffers picked up on pretty, pretty, uh, profoundly. Hmm. In probably the most striking passage of this essay, you write about a speech Jeffers gave at the Library of Congress in 1941, in which he portrayed himself as ultimately hopeful about future civilizations, and you feel that it was disingenuous. And then you write, quote, what's more, I believe the fatuous notion of hope must itself go extinct. There is nothing left to hope for. No better human civilization is going to gracefully rise from our mistakes. End quote. And you actually go even further elsewhere in this essay, suggesting that, like Jeffers, you aren't troubled by the idea of human extinction. Could you explain why you feel that way? 
And do you do you find it to be a stable attitude or something you find yourself sliding in and out to, out of at times? Yeah, I, I think it's definitely fluid. I mean, I think I've been sliding in in and out of it for probably twenty years as an environmental writer. Mm. The first article I wrote for Harper's was about mountaintop removal strip mining in Appalachia, and that's a pretty bleak landscape to just inhabit as as much as I did. And so at the end of that, I, I felt like you know I had to hold out for myself and for readers, you know, some idea of hope that we could get past this and we could, you know, reforest the strip mines and put up solar panels and and all this. But ever since then, you know, I've just felt my, my thinking drifting further away from that. And I think I, one of the things I really liked about Jeffers was that he, he, he introduced this poetic that said, you know, you don't have to be hopeful about humans. You just have to be hopeful about the world in general. And that mm-hmm. if you decenter humans, you'll actually enter into something that's much more, you know, poetic and spiritual and lovely. And it's not necessarily hope, but it's a way of thinking more honestly about about the world and about the future. And so when I wrote that sentence about you know, retiring the word hope. I mean, I, I, I took a long time to ask myself if I really was ready to, to go that far. And, you know, I just found that, that I was, Hmm. I guess the idea of, the idea of human extinction doesn't bother me because I think the world would be so much better without us. I mean, it would. Uh, Yeah. (laughs) You know, and I think it's narcissistic in a way that, to, 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 to not think that, you know, to still embrace this, you know, notion of the great chain of being and and all that. And I think Jeffers was one of the first thinkers and poets in this country to, you know, say it doesn't have to be all about human beings. It can be about this other kind of beauty that's beyond us. Hmm. Even someone like you who feels relatively comfortable with the prospect of human extinction might still be upset thinking about the number of non-human species we're going to take down with us. There's a question of what kinds of life the planet will be able to sustain by the time that we're done with it. As someone who's spent a long time studying these questions, what would you say about that? Do you think there's a reason to think the planet will be able to heal itself from the damage we've done to it? Or is that, again, just too uh, anthropocentric uh, a notion? Mm -hmm. I mean, I think the planet is healing itself right now. I think that's what COVID is. Mm. It's a way of the planet saying there's just far too many people on, on this this thing that's hurtling through through the universe. And so, I mean, I think the planet's already beginning to recover. And the thing that I struggled with a long time was just the, this idea that there will be so much human human suffering on the road to extinction. And we're seeing it right now, but at the end of the day, I just felt like it's more honest just to to face up with that and say, you know, we've really dug a huge, huge hole and we might not get out of it, but that doesn't mean we don't have to do nothing. There's things we can do, but we just have to be honest about what the future will look like. And speaking of COVID... Uh, your piece fits into a larger conversation that seems to be happening lately around the idea of hope and whether or not it's justified or even if it's useful as a concept. 
for someone who hasn't given up hope, the thought of doing so can feel dangerous. The most obvious worry is that giving up hope might also mean our struggle against the forces that have made hopes so difficult. So like giving up on dismantling the capitalist death machine or cutting emissions or doing what we can to establish new relationships with nature. Do you think there's a risk of a kind of demoralization effect here? Or can those kinds of struggles be vital even after one has accepted human extinction? Yeah, I think so. It's something I thought a lot about because, you know, I spend a lot of my time around young people as a teacher. And I don't want to say to them, you know, you can't have hope or you have to abandon hope. Mm -hmm. But at at the same time, I don't want to give them false hope. You know, I I don't want them to think, well, we don't have to try very hard because things are ultimately going to work out with all the the new technology. Mm -hmm. So I I just I'm trying to embrace as honest a vision of the future as as I can for myself and for readers and and, and for students. And it doesn't by, by any means mean, you know, just acquiescing to the powers that be, but it means saying, you know, I'm going to continue to fight for the things I believe in, even if I'm not going to live to see this environmental utopia that we've been promised for so long. Mm-hmm. There's also the more philosophical argument that a person might need some form of hope for humanity in order to live or in order to live meaningfully. Is Jeffers a counterargument to that in your mind? Or how do you think through that problem in your own life? I think we all invent our own meaning in our own lives, personal lives, and our family lives, and our social lives. I mean, I think that's still all a very viable thing to do, you know, to say, we're going to make these 80 years we have on the planet as meaningful as possible. And this is the way, this is the way we're going to do it. But we need to do it in a framework of admitting where we are and admitting that moving forward is going to be is going to be painful that doesn't mean it's not going to be rewarding because much of it can be rewarding and can be beautiful you know just because you lose a species doesn't mean you know you've lost beauty but as robert frost said you've diminished beauty mm-hmm. and so i think moving forward you know we just have to if anything pay more attention to those things that are they're beautiful, that are nourishing, that um, give us a sense of purpose. So I'm not abandoning the idea of, of purpose when I abandon the mm. word hope. I'm just abandoning a certain kind of naivete, and I, that's the way I feel about it. Yeah. You you imply that by expressing such bleak views of humanity in the future. Jeffers ensured that he'd be a fairly obscure poet, and it seems true that any really unredemptive view of humanity is bound to be unpopular. So given that, what has the response to this piece been like so far? Have there been any surprises? Yeah, there have been surprises. uh, I've been real surprised that people have really responded. (laughs) (laughs) A lot of people are saying they don't really see it as pessimistic, because, you know, at the end of the day, I'm not I'm not saying we definitely will go extinct, but I'm saying if we don't go extinct, we're going to get reinvented so radically that we will end up looking like 
the kind of small generalist communities that that you know Thomas Jefferson, that Robinson Jeffers, you know, always always was was calling for. I got a fan letter from Joy Williams, who's a writer I love, and she was she just said, "I'm so glad you put that paragraph about hope in there." Mm-hmm. <laughs> so that was that was enough justification for me if, if Joy Williams thought it worked. Then that is pretty good. You write about the location of Tor House and visiting there, and it's uh, it's location on the West Coast and. Reaching the West Coast was the stated goal of Manifest Destiny, which in a way gives the genocide that took place there a different significance. Your essay concludes with a visit to what remains of the Esselin, who are an an indigenous people who were enslaved by the Spanish and eventually died off. Thinking beyond the poem Hands, which was inspired by Jeffra's visit to their petroglyphs, how does this aspect of Tor House's location and history relate to and complicate Jeffers' work? I think, you know, like you say, we've always thought that if you get to California, you know, you've really got it made, like the Merle Haggard song, mm-hmm. California Cotton Fields. Uh, <laughs> and, and I think Jeffers just turned that all on its head and said, you know, this is where America is, is coming to face up to all of its sins. Yeah. And, you know, that's what's happening right now. I mean, the state's on fire. It's going to be on fire for a long, long time. And, you know, we're we're the ones who did it. Mm -hmm. So how did you you write a little bit about how you came to Robinson Jeffers work? But Mm -hmm. could you expand upon that and sort of explain his career as a semi obscure poet who was working in the early half of the 20th century. Well, I mean, the irony of Jeffers and a lot of people is he was fantastically famous until he wasn't, you know, (laughs) (laughs) he went from the cover of time magazine to nobody, you know, um, wanting to have anything to do with him. And I think for me, what I saw in Jeffers when I started my career as an environmental writer was somebody that, that like an American poet who I could really latch on to and say, you know, this was at the center of his work, unlike T.S. Eliot or Wallace Stevens or, you know, all these modernists who really didn't give a damn about thinking about the natural world. (laughs) And so, you know, I came to Jeffers a lot that way. And I just began to realize that, you know, he was what made him so unfashionable at the time was what I think is kind of bringing him back now. I mean, there's this big resurgence of Jeffers' work, particularly in England. And I, I think now that we are doing what Jeffers said to do, which is uncenter our minds from ourselves, and suddenly all these modernist preoccupations of history seem less relevant than you know, Jeffers' preoccupations with extinction. Yeah. I, well, I actually, I want to go back to the question of the Esalen. Again, this is about a genocide, an extinction of a group of people. And as you said earlier, the way in which people in that part of California now live is totally different from the way that the Esalen lived. So I guess, do you think that Jeffers was interested in this question of genocide, man's inhumanity to man or was it or is he again is he kind of taking humanity out of this and just seeing 
the eventual decline and fall of a, a civilization as, yeah. you know, just part of a, a larger cycle. I think it's interesting in his longer epic poems, there's definitely that sense of his interest in man's inhumanity to man. But when you get to the shorter lyric poems, it, it becomes more prophetic and more apocalyptic in, a, in an interesting way. So I think there's there was these two sides of Jeffers, and he ultimately reconciled it in the the figure of Orestes when he rewrote the Oresteia, and saying that the only way Orestes could escape all of the awful family violence that you know had plagued him was to turn outward towards the whole, Jeffers said, you know, this this larger relationship to the universe, to what Spinoza called God or nature. Yeah. I mean, I, I, I can't help but think of when he gave that uh, speech, you know, that you, you argue that mm-hmm. is uh, disingenuous because obviously it's the middle of a war. You have to present a different front. And so... To what extent was he shaped by things that were happening in his own lifetime? Well, I mean, the fact that he lived through two wars and that his sons fought in, in the first one, I think, really shaped just the, the absolute disbelief in anything we would call progress or human progress or civilization. Um, he thought the wars just completely invalidated that. And... I had a lot to say in my piece about Silicon Valley, but most of it got cut out. <laughs> you know, at one point, one poem, Jeffers says, even when the cities crumble, we'll still have the mountains. You know, so there was that sense to him. I mean, there was an excellent sense to him, right? That there was this retreat to the mountains that, that could happen, and it was noble. And, you know, even if it was, you know, terribly, terribly difficult and painful. What would you have argued about Silicon Valley? And how do you think of that space now that, you know, San Francisco is has a population of probably what it was in the early 90s, because that industry has fled the city and just sort of gone to their, you know, they've, they've fled their condos yeah. and gone to their uh, palatial mansions yeah. elsewhere. <laughs> yeah, they're in, they're all in Tahoe now. That's what I hear. <laughs> Yeah, you know, I mean, what, what Jeffers always warned against was hive mentality. Mm. Uh, and he said, he said we should be aware of cross mentality Christianity, and, and we should be aware of hive mentality, which I think Silicon Valley is just such a, you know, embodiment of. And what I tried to do was sort of take on the techno-futurist of Silicon Valley. This got cut as well. And say, you know, all of you people who want to, you know, up the, upload your brains to computers and ship them to Mars, you know, good, leave, go, you know, and leave those of us who still love the natural world and want to inhabit it profoundly to make what we can of the, the d- diminished, the diminished place that we still have. Right. So that was, that, those were several of my Silicon Valley rants that um, disappeared into the ether. Since you've written two books now that have grown out of essays published in Harper's, uh, like Lost Mountain, A Year in the Vanishing Wilderness, and American Gospel on Family History and the Kingdom of God, it seems fair to ask, are you planning a longer writing project about Jeffers? 
I don't think so. At first, I thought I might do a project where I would choose one American writer from one state and one work from that and just, you know, do some some big sort of thing about that. But I uh, I think my agent has talked me off that ledge, so I think this may just be a self-contained piece. <laughs> Though I'll have to say, I think I worked harder on this 20-page piece than anything else I've ever written spent so much time with Jeffers and thinking about Jeffers. And so, you know, when Chris contacted me from Harper's and said, why don't you re reconsider this in terms of what's going on with COVID now, you know, I really liked that idea because at first it was kind of all about Trump's America. So I really liked that idea of thinking in, in a larger, in a, in a larger way about it. So I was happy the way it came together. Is there any poem by Jeffers that you feel really like accompanies the piece or that you feel a special affinity for? I think Carmel Point still accompanies the piece well, even though it's one of his better known ones. Mm. Do you, would you mind reading it or? Sure. Yeah, yeah, sure. You ready? Okay. Okay. Carmel Point, the extraordinary patience of things, this beautiful place defaced with a crop of suburban houses how beautiful when we first beheld it. Unbroken field of poppy and lupine, walled with clean cliffs. No intrusion but two or three horses pasturing, or a few milch cows rubbing their flanks on the outcrop head rocks. Now the spoiler has come. Does it care? Not faintly. It has all time. It knows the people are a tide that swells and in time will ebb, and all their work dissolve. Meanwhile, the image of the pristine beauty lives in the very grain of the granite, safe as the endless ocean that climbs our cliff. As for us, we must uncenter our minds from ourselves. We must unhumanize our views a little and be confident as the rock and ocean that we were made from. Hmm. Beautiful. Well, yeah. is there anything else you wanted to touch on or do you think... Um, I think I would just start repeating myself. <laughs> <laughs> Fair enough. I mean, uh, isn't poetry is about repetition sometimes, so that's fine. <laughs> I think I think one last one last thing I would say that I didn't put this in the piece, but I think it's true is I felt like in a way Jeffers was writing the same poem over and over. Hmm. Uh, I think he was writing Shelley's Ozymandias over and over, and you know, saying to human beings your hubris is not going to is not going to save you and it's going to be a better a better world when when it doesn't but um i thought that might be too much of a of a knock on jeffers to say that in print and maybe i shouldn't say it at all but uh, i just felt that a lot like you know like you feel like some songwriters do that they write the same song over and over but it's a great song so you don't mind listening to it yeah or like the same, you know, Rothko painted the same painting over and over, but it was a great painting. So anyway, maybe all great artists have really just one great, brilliant idea. Well, isn't that? Well, that's also what um, F. Scott Fitzgerald said, right? Every, every man yeah. tells the same story. But all right. Well, thank you so much. This was a real pleasure talking to you. Yeah, sure.